Everyone still looks uncomfortable. Perhaps they all remember that old saying, power corrupts. Welcome to Second Officer Slog, episode 29. I'm your host, M, and with me is my number one, Jackson. Hello, welcome, it's Star Trek time. We're back, we're back to talk about Star Trek. We haven't read a book in so long, Jackson. I don't know what words are. Uh, that's not true, you read those comics, those comics had words on them. <laughs> they were bad words, but they were words. We're back. You're done with school. It's been like a, it seems like it's been seven years since we've recorded one of these and it's my favorite podcast we do. So it's a real bummer. I'm really excited to be back in Star Trek. Yep. Unfortunately, today we have a terrible book to read. Not a good book. We were very excited. It was like, oh yeah, we're back. We're going to do the Discovery book. The last one was really good. This one will be great. No, unfortunately, it's not very good. Yep. Clint Howard voice. It was not. Clint, <laughs> Clint Howard. God, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> That's not allowed. No, it's extremely allowed. I did it. You can't stop me. Oh, oh. Recanceling this podcast. I'm going back to school. <laughs> <laughs> you would rather make this show about Star Wars than you would go back to school. Don't lie to the people. I started reading the next Thrawn book. Oh, did you really? <laughs> yes. Oh, you idiot. You absolute tool. <laughs> it's been a year and I was like, oh, I want, I should I should see what happens next in the Thrawn trilogy. Okay, great. We're not going to talk about that. We have two episodes to talk about this today. We are talking about Yesteryear and Data's Day. Yesteryear is uh, animated series. Data's Day, of course, is TNG. We are covering the book, Drastic Measures. If you don't want to hear about any of this, uh, the only thing we're going to probably spoil is a little bit of Discovery, but you probably know the things that we'd spoil because it happens in the middle of Discovery. Um, check out that. Uh, nothing going there. Next month, we will be looking at two episodes uh, both from DS9, it is Rejoined, Season 4, Episode 6, and uh, Field of Fire, Season 7, Episode 13. And then we will be reading the book, The Lives of Dax. Uh, this is, that stuff is all stuff you should probably have seen the end of DS9 before we get into. Yes. Uh, so I'm excited to do all of that. Uh, we'll be back on our DS9 train for a brief period. I know. Now that we're done with the Shatnerverse, done with Discovery for a couple months, uh, it'll be great. Brief period of five books. We have five books left. Yes, and then we'll probably trade. read that Saru book, and then we'll probably do something else. Because, yeah, I think it's... Um, and by then, we will be doing weekly Discovery episodes again, because Discovery will be back. Yeah, because we've, we've got Lives of Dax, which we've got to read. Then there's uh, Rising Sun, which the cliffhanger to Lesser Evil led into. Are we, we doing that before? Are we doing the Klingon books before or after that? <laughs> Uh, then we know. Then it's the Klingon books, and the, okay. I don't. I don't know. And then there's the basically there's two Klingon books called Left Hand of Destiny, and then there's Unity, which is the final SD Perry book that brings this first DS9 run together. Um, and there's and then we don't know. But Star Trek is our oyster, I guess. We'll go somewhere else. Probably to a time two, a time two. I guess that's we have. There are nine a time two books. We won't do nine episodes. I refuse. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll have I mean, the, the we'll books are all, out. except the last book, they're all two-parters. They're all yeah, two-part books. True. So we'll probably do it that way, but I don't know. That's a little behind the sausage for you. 
Yeah, let's talk about Star Trek. Let's fuck all this. Let's talk about some Star Trek. Hell yes. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Are we going to have a fucking animated series theme in there? Yes, absolutely. Are you kidding me? It's the best. What are you talking about? <laughs> do, 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 do. It's weird, because the theme isn't just different, but the the fanfare's different too. Yes. But it still has a fanfare? It's before the fanfare got canonized as the fanfare. Yes. Oh, it's weird. It's so weird. I was not prepared. We are going to be watching the animated series. Well, no, we've already watched it. We are going to be talking about Yesteryear, episode two of the only season of the animated series. It was uh, written by DC Fontana, directed by Hal Sutherland. It aired 15th of September, 1973. It is set in uh, 2269. And 2237. I guess that is true. Yes. <laughs> Because this is a time travel episode, so I guess because I started talking about it, I'm in charge of summarizing it. Well, yeah, but uh, do you want to summarize or do you want to talk? Yeah, summarize first, then I'll ask you the question I want to ask. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to quickly talk about this episode. So this episode begins uh, with a, a bunch of Federation historians uh, at the Guardian of Forever, like, recording some history as Kirk and Spock come out and they've been like yes our mission was successful we went to see the birth of the orions um but as they come out they realize uh that nobody knows who spock is the uh first officer of the enterprise is an andorian called thalen which it's mad that if he they just introduced this guy and he's not he's just like a throwaway thing like time is wrong but he's cool I like the, this first officer of the Andorian. Um, and so uh, Spock realizes that the timeline has been altered and he has to uh, fix it because um, they they go into the history of Spock and there's no Spock in Starfleet. And then they go to find Sarek in history. Um, and Sarek was Sarek was, uh, was around uh, and his human wife and son tragically died in 2237. And Spock's like, when did they die? And they died in uh, th- these trials that all Vulcans do. Um, well, Spock which... died in the trials, and then Amanda divorced Sarek and then died in a shuttle accident on the way back to Earth. <laughs> yeah, Amanda which is the most really bad day for Amanda. <laughs> uh, yeah, he died during the Cas One maturity test, that is called uh, on this very helpful memory alpha page. Um, and he remembers that he'd only survived because of the help of a like distant cousin, Selick. Uh, and then he thinks, "Wait, Selick looks like I do now." It must be me. I must be destined to save myself. Uh, so he travels back into the Guardian of the Forever and he gets sent back to Vulcan in 2237 and he uh, visits his child self who is being bullied by kids and doesn't know whether he should like accept his human heritage or like choose his Vulcan heritage and is torn between two worlds. Um, I don't know how much to go into the details here. But basically, he is, he's not having a good time with that and he sets out to prove himself that he can truly be a Vulcan alone uh, to do the cast one on his own. Uh, Spock as Selec follows him and uh, like saves him by killing these monsters that are attacking them in the desert. Um, 
however, his pet, uh, who is called Ichaya. Ich- Ichaya, yeah, it's a Ichaya? pet Salot, which they mentioned in the original series, yes. where there's like the joke was like, oh, it's like a Vulcan teddy bear, and Spock's like, on Vulcan, the teddy bears are six feet tall and have razor sharp fangs, which I guess they do, but also this thing is a giant teddy bear. <laughs> yes, no, like this is this is them making the joke of that one episode that we talked about being like a ridiculous joke that they could never show and trying to make it real, and guess what? It's a ridiculous joke you could never show. Thankfully, uh, through the efforts of animation, you can indeed make it real. You can indeed make it real. We have the technology. Um, and uh, tragically, this pet dies in in saving Spock. And uh, young Spock decides to like find a healer to save the save his pet. But the pet, the, he- the healer is like, it can't. We can't do anything. Either we can kill him, uh, like we can like put the pet down, or we can like prolong the life. But they will be suffering, and you must choose. Uh, and he essentially has to choose between logic and heart in this moment. He chooses logic and he's like, yes, I will let the pet go because it is uh, the logical thing to do. And he returns to Sarek and is like, I have chosen Vulcan. And Selick, uh, Spock as Selick leaves and Sarek says, you are welcome anytime. And Sarek, <laughs> Spock goes, uh, I don't think I will be. <laughs> Like, I'm not going to be coming around here very much soon. And he returns back to uh, the present day where everyone remembers him and he has fixed the timeline. And Kirk goes, is everything fixed? And Spock says, yes, uh, unfortunately, that one there has been one small change. My pet died. And Kirk goes, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Spock's like, to some, it means the world. Yes. Don't be so rude. It was my pet. Um. And then, because even though this is the animated series and McCoy hasn't been in this episode, they still beam back to the Enterprise for one final joke with Spock and McCoy, because it is the thing that has to happen in every episode of Star Trek. Uh, to be fair, it also opens with McCoy, like, deadpanning the dumbest joke possible. <laughs> So, Jackson, before we get too involved in this, this was your first time watching the animated series. Please tell me how you found the animated series. It's so strange. Yes, um, it is strange. I wasn't prepared. I literally wasn't prepared. I liked the episode, but like it was really jarring, especially because uh, the three uh, historians that they happen with the Garden of Forever are like two humans, or maybe a human and Vulcan. Um, but the the important thing is that the person next to them is just a bird guy, like yeah, a, it's just a, a big a, Griffin animated man. bird guy. Yeah, like because it doesn't have to have, be like makeup; they could just look like a Griffin. Yep. Um. And so it was really weird, and also really weird was the voice acting, because the Guardian of the Forever's like, yeah, I can see all of time, which I guess so, it was like that originally. The thing the thing to remember about the Guardian, and actually every character that is not, uh, uh, so that, is, are they... that is not the main character, it is either, it is either James Duhon or Nichelle yes. Nichols, or, uh, uh, God, uh, Majel Barrett. Every single extra voice is one of the three of them. Like, every single one? Uh, mostly, yeah. James Duhon does, does almost every voice that is not, like, uh, one of the cast characters, usually. Yeah, I knew that James Duhon does a lot of... Yeah, okay. Fuck, you weren't kidding. It was, okay. James Duhon as Garnier Forever, Montgomery Scott, Thalen, Erickson, Bates, Alik Ohm, uh, and Welcome Healer. <laughs> yep. Wow. Get it done. Yeah, Majel Barrett as Grey and Amanda Grayson. Yeah, they still got uh, Mark Lennard, though. Originally, uh, they were going to have uh, James Duhon do Sarek in this episode, but no! they're like, no, 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 we need to get Mark Leonard. We you, really should do that. You need to get Mark Leonard for Sarek. Jesus. Yes. Yep. Uh, importantly, this episode's depiction of Vulcan is so funny. <laughs> in what way? In the... 
it just depicts every single Vulcan child as Vulcan childhood being yelling your intentions at like maximum volume at all times. Because that's all Spock does. He walks in and he's like, Father, I have been out at the desert today. <laughs> yes, no, every child actor is terrible in the exact same way. <laughs> it's so funny. And also because like this happens in um like it's the same scene from 09, right? Like the kids yeah. bullying uh Spock for having a human mother, but they're way less like awkwardly Vulcan about it. Because in L9, they're like, I trust you've prepared new insults for today, and it's insufferable. And here they're just bullies. Yep. The thing I like about this is that this episode makes no mention outside of Sarek being Sarek that Vulcans are like logical and like distant. They are just the most on their bullshit in the entirety of this episode. Yeah, even Spock is like, we don't, we, you still have emotions. You can't pretend you don't because that's like how you, everything goes wrong. Yeah, but Sarek but even like, even when even when Spock goes to the healer, the healer like comes out in his underwear because it's the middle of the night, and he's like, "Ah, you are Spock. I've heard you're a liar. I'm not going to go help a liar child." And he's like, "No, sir. They've been spreading rumors about me. Please come help." And he's like, "Well, I guess if you promise you're telling the truth." Yeah. Uh, also, all the children are in like just like some briefs and a yep. strap. <laughs> like yep. the child Vulcan uniform is some briefs and then like a. A, a strap that goes, you know, like a shoulder strap. Yep. Um, and that's it. That's that's the whole thing. All of them look like that. It's incredible. Like, what? Yep. Uh, also, so Spock was erased from history because he went into the Guardian forever. And then when they asked to replay Vulcan history, he wasn't there to intercept his, like, potential death. And thus, he they couldn't, like... He couldn't prevent it by going back in time and thus it rewrote the timeline, which means using the Guardian Forever doesn't just show you history, it reenacts history. That seems like the most dangerous thing possible. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't just reenact, like it only reenacts history in a way that interferes with it if there has already been time travel present. So like, yes. if if the... But that what that means is if they ever replay Edith Keeler and Kirk's not there to jump through the thing, then yes. all, everything erases. <laughs> yep. <laughs> if I ever replay First Contact, <laughs> which also like the, the opening monologue is like we went to the the planet of the time vortex where all the timelines converge in our galaxy, and the, the scientists there like this. Yep, we're just checking the timelines. Not like it's what? it's just three people what? standing outside of the gateway with a tricorder. Which like we made fun we made fun of how it's portrayed in Imzadi, where it's like a whole installation and that Orion scientist and huge force field. At least that makes sense that you would not want anyone to touch this thing. <laughs> Why did you have to fucking remind me of the Orion scientist who was just so fucking hot? But she was smart, though. She was smart because she wore glasses. God, she was hot. Oh, I'm so mad. Why did you remind me of that? I've gone, gone from my memory. Peter David, what the fuck? <laughs> Uh, but no, like it's it's such a like this the animated series is weird and um, so the, specifically the thing that's weird to me and it's entirely because of like associations is w the way in which these characters are like this is a show that's clearly made on the cheap 70s animation is not great just traditionally so everyone's very like stiltily animated like it's mostly just close ups on like a head is a mouth it, like badly flaps. And then the voice actors are the actors on Star Trek who are like probably getting paid a pittance to be on this show. So they're not exactly giving it their all. So this deadpan delivery of these poorly animated lines, all I see is every adult swim show from the late 90s and early aughts. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, I, no, it you is. You can never unsee it. <laughs> it's just, yeah, no, because this is like an entire aesthetic that came back, but with irony. 
Yes. So like Kirk comes out of the Guardian Forever and he's like, what a trip, Bones. And McCoy's like, uh, Jim, who's that with you? And he's like, you know, Spock, right? He's like, uh, I don't know. There's no Vulcan on the Enterprise. And then uh, what's his face comes up? Uh, Thalen. And Kirk's like, who's that? And McCoy's like, I sure you know Thalen by now. He's been your first officer for five years. That's a funny joke. And it's just the most inhuman thing in the world. <laughs> and it's not played as comedy. It's just played as Star Trek plot. But because of like the cultural cachet around this type of animation it feels like bizarro like anti-comedy yeah, but like that's all the fucking every family guy cutaway gag is it's just like a thing but done badly like done awkwardly and with like all the lines being very like very blatant and forced like if there was a gang in any of these series that had a colorway to star trek it would be like ah oh, hello there scott there on the enterprise that we are on like it just it's that it's literally the same thing but instead this is like this being made really earnestly to try to bring back star trek on the cheap right yeah and so it feels super weird because you want to read it one way and yet it is entirely serious it is just trying to give you like, can we make you Star Trek in 23 minutes? And the answer is, like, kind of, but it's a weird mess. It's really strange with it. So, like, this episode's a bad one for me, because I know that you're, um, not, not as an episode, but you're, uh, like not complaint but like weirdness with the animated series comes with like the lack of b plots and the structure of star trek episode kind of fall apart yes uh, but this episode's got a really unconventional like star trek plot like yeah just just like um sitting in the edge forever was a really unconventional plot like they're like single focus time travel story is not a thing they do very often even though it, like it's these two are the main ones and like yeah. i guess you know first contact and yes the, the one that they get the, the, the one in ds9 I'm told there's a bunch in Voyager, but these kind of, like, single things, no, like... And also on the ship, this is happening. Usually on the ship, and then also something is happening, and there's no... Yeah, usually, usually like, Worf is, like, having some problems with his son while this is going on, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and it's... There's none of that. There's no space for that here. Which, like I said, because this episode is what it is, it didn't feel out of place not having that. But I can imagine in a more traditional, like, this episode's about negotiations and there's no subplot of some bullshit happening. Yeah. I mean, weird. like, this episode in particular is, like, the one that is the most tied into, like, canon. And, like, if if you were telling people, oh, you need to, like, watch TOS, I would include this episode because it's important to, like, Spock's backstory to me. Mm -hmm. um i like all the like spock comes up to sarek and has like this weird moment where he realizes his dad is like just a person and that stuff is really interesting and good to me yeah he's like oh you just have a son you have no idea what to do with i understand <laughs> yeah he does <laughs> and then just pretends to be like a distant cousin like i swear i recognize you you look like my son or something he's like ah a distant familiar relation of course yes that must be it and he's like nah, yes must be it and then it's Amanda goes expression. to apologize. Amanda tries to apologize to Spock for Spock to Spock, and Spock's like, "No, no, no! You don't have to apologize for him. I understand. The boy is going to have trouble in his life. Please try to support him." Yeah, he goes to his dad. Is like, "Just be, just love your son, please." Uh, please never tell him about his older brother and his kind of adopted sister. <laughs> yes, no, no one mentioned those. Please, I want, I want to recut this episode where like young Michael Burnham is just running around in the background. <laughs> What would hang on? I'm I'm just gonna I'm googling when the Klingon attack happened. Oh right, um, I guess it might not have happened yet. Um, it is the early twenty two thirties. Okay, so, then it hasn't happened yet. 
Well, this was 2237, so it has happened. Oh, yeah. right, right. It has happened. Right, right. So, You're right. Wait, so canonically, they were kids at the same time on Vulcan. Yeah, uh, Michael Burnham is slightly older than Spock. Okay. I know what the like aging was and whether like I didn't know if they were like I assume, in house I assume together. Vulcans age kind of the same as humans. They just live forever. They just live like to two hundred or something. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's not like it's not like Klingons where Alexander goes from like a baby to like a teenager in four years. <laughs> no, no, because like to Paul's like in a seventies or something. They like, play that as a joke. Yeah, but like once they reach adulthood, they go slow, right? Oh, like okay, so like yeah, right. so like yeah. they get rid of the kid stuff because no one cares, and then they're just they can be hot forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, but um, yeah, no, it, it's been explicit that Michael Burnham grew up with Spock, and she is slightly older, like older than him, but enough that they're like cast as like siblings who kind of interacted a bunch, right? Yeah, I, I didn't know how much they done. like spent in the same house or whether it was yeah. like, and then Spock left, and you know, no, no, she she's in the first, she's in like. the background being written, like read uh, Alice in Wonderland by Amanda right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, because she graduates first because yeah, yeah right. Yep, yeah, no, re-edit this. Thank you. <laughs> what would like bad 70s animation Michael Burnham look like? Just just this, but uh just a just like Uhuru but tiny, and then you could get uh please uh get Sneaker Martin Green to come in and like deadpan a line or two, but in a kid voice. <laughs> deadpan but like as a 14-year-old. That'd be incredible. That would be good stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess that's that episode. What was the other yeah. episode we watched? You're going to summarize this one. Uh, okay. I uh, The other episode is Data's Day. This is TNG Season 4, Episode 11. This was a teleplay by Harold Apter and Roland D. Moore. Story by Harold Apter. Directed by Robert Weimer. It aired the 7th of January, 1991. You were not alive yet, correct? <laughs> correct. Yes. Uh, this takes place in the year 2367. On this, Data is uh, writing a letter to Commander Maddox, the guy who wanted to uh, take him apart and understand how he works in Season 2's Measure of a Man. Uh, he, is, he he said he was going to write to him and help his research, and he's still doing that. Um, and he's like, I, I see you've been having trouble dealing with uh, brains, robot brains, and you need actual information, so I'm going to just send you my logs for the like this day that I went on. And the episode is then the logs of this day. This is a busy day because it is the marriage of miles o'brien and keiko ishikawa um or is supposed to be though it opens with her saying i don't want to do it anymore and calling off the wedding also the enterprise is picking up ambassador tapel uh who is on a secret mission to take them into the neutral zone and rendezvous with some romulans because they might have information that will help bring romulus and the federation closer together uh, but it's mostly Data doing that stuff while he's, like, trying to learn how to dance and pick out a gift for the wedding and talking about relationships with Jordy. Because why would you ever do that? Data, <laughs> Jordy doesn't know anything about relationships. This is, like, one of the lighter episodes of TNG. It's just a f- bunch of good fun times until the B-plot becomes the A-plot briefly at the end. And the ambassador, the ambassador meets with the Romulans. They go to Beamer aboard the Romulan ship to have, like, a 
conference or whatever, there's a transporter accident and she is killed on the transporter pad. And then in investigating that as they leave uh, the neutral zone, they discover that no, actually there was a second transporter beam and she was probably abducted and they left residue that made it seem like she was killed. And they go to fly up and threaten the Romulans again. And it turns out that she wasn't actually a a Vulcan ambassador. She was a Romulan in disguise as a Vulcan ambassador. And she's going back to her people and they found it out. And that's the end of the episode. (laughs) The wedding happens. The end of the episode. (laughs) Yes, the wedding goes ahead. So this is mostly just a bunch of bits. So we'll just talk about the bits. This is like a whole showcase for Data being the breakout character of this show. Like they knew by now. So they just made a whole episode about how Data is cute and everybody loves him, which is true. But also rewatching this episode right now, yesterday, I was like, there's no fucking way you could write a character like Data today because it's the fucking most weird, insensitive mental health analog possible. <laughs> yeah. Data is just like, so this isn't a thing that they do that much with da- in my memory with Data because like he's too plot. He- like irrelevant they don't yes. usually have and, and, and like he when he like tries to do art it's more about like oh i'm so good at this thing because i could you know like the, the stuff in relics wasn't like autism parallel number one uh, yeah but this is and like, by, peak like his, his painting isn't his painting when he like gets into painting it isn't expressed that way either it's like much more like oh weird he can just paint and he's he's like dealing with the fact that he can paint even though he doesn't think he can right yeah like, it's him trying to do these, like, things that he doesn't understand and, like, getting into them and, like, exploring them. And that's, I guess, what this is. But it's because it's all about, like, m- navigating emotional, like, boundaries and relationships. Um, and also he... narrated narrated by Data always telling you the way he sees it logically and it being, like, the goofy, not, like, comedy of errors that it's going to be and telegraphing that all in advance. He just seems like an idiot child. But yeah. that's played in, like, him being, like, the most autistic person. I'm about to say the worst thing I've ever said. Yes. It's just young Sheldon. <laughs> uh, yeah, because, yeah, it's literally just that. It's like, I don't understand why uh, KK would be mad at, at O'Brien for this. Would they not have talked about this? It does not make sense. I don't understand how relationships or people work. I consulted my list of how people work. Like, it's, whoa. It's a whole thing. Because, um, yeah, I wasn't prepared for it either. Because we both separately, completely individually, like were blown away at how much it is that. Yeah, and and like, whatever, this show is from 91, it's a different time, and Data's usually a well-written character, and I don't hate this episode, I think it's, like, mostly cute, but the culture has changed. Um, Tilly is the best. (laughs) Yes. Because Tilly comes in and is awkward and is like, oh, I don't really have a roommate because they said because of my special needs. And I rewatched the um, first three episodes of Discovery the other day because because um, I was showing them to my mum. Uh, it's I forgot how exp- like they must turn they turn it down in the future episodes. That episode is really explicit about Tilly as like uh, either autism or mental health parallel of some kind because like yeah. she's like very clear about that. Yeah, um, and then in six episodes she's like hitting on band guys and then looking at a space whale in her party dress. Yeah. <laughs> God, Tilly's good. Yes. <laughs> I love her so much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As like a, how far we've come, I would like, was thinking about Tilly this entire episode. Yep. I want a Tilly's day. Just, that's just because I love Tilly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But no, so that stuff with Data is like weird and kind, not, I wouldn't call it uncomfortable. It's just interesting to note. It was the thing that I was struck by rewatching this episode. And I rewatched this episode like a year ago and didn't really catch on. I was mostly just having a good time this time. I was like, wait a second. This whole thing is a bunch of bullshit. Uh, yes. But like, so, because uh, I, I like, I have autism and uh, the thing I was not expecting was that like being forced into um, 
into the middle of like relationship drama that makes no fucking sense is extremely relatable. Uh, yeah. Like, and the episode doesn't actually play it as that. The episode plays it as um, uh, data not understanding human interaction. But because it's about Mars and O'Brien, the like, not Mars and O'Brien, Mars and Keiko, the most dysfunctional couple in all of fucking space. Like, they are terrible at talking to each other. It like. They, like if this was if they did this episode today and had this premise, it would be more about how data understands like this stuff more than these two complete morons. Um, yes, because like the sense of like not knowing this stuff, um, like it, like innately and having to learn it and watching these people that think they know it innately but are actually fucking awful at communicating with each other who haven't like taken the time to cultivate the ability to like communicate with their friends. Like that was very relatable watching this. Uh, yes. Uh, even if it's like not quite intentional, they don't like. I don't think the show realizes how dysfunctional uh, Miles and Keiko are. Well, this is like the first episode where O'Brien's given like actual things to do, and it's the introduction of Keiko. She just shows up to be married to Miles, and then proceeds to be married to Miles for the next ten years and doesn't do anything with it. <laughs> oh, poor Keiko. Yeah. None more more misused. Remember when DS9 starts and Rosalind Chow's like given good episodes and material and you're like, oh, she's great. She'll be like a great addition to this cast. Who would have thought? And then the rest of DS9 happens to her. I can't believe they couldn't figure out what to do with her. Yeah. They should have just had less scenes with her and O'Brien and put her in like, I don't know. Yeah, they should have given her other characters to play off of. Instead, O'Brien's too busy like fucking having glad hand time with Julian Bashir. And yeah. that's all they actually care about. Why isn't she doing like equivalent and like having like hanging yeah. out with fucking? Why isn't Carol she hanging out with Dax or something? <laughs> Dax trying to teach these two fucking disaster straights with terrible taste in men how to do anything. Yes, <laughs> that'd be good. Yeah. Uh, uh, so what are the bits? So that, that's a mess. At the, but the best the best part of this is Data's like reflections on his crewmates, which yes. is the thing you come for, and it's really funny and good. Uh, he basically just, like, talks about how, like, yes, everyone knows Riker's a giant flirt, but everyone thinks he's too charming to say anything bad about it, which <laughs> when, is true. When Riker is basically, like, the most down-to-fuck he's ever been. Because, like, yeah. so we often joke about how Riker has, like, you know, just, he'll, he'll you know, he'll he's down-to-fuck with anyone. He's probably slept with most people on the Enterprise at this point, but not in, like, a conquering way, just because, you know, it's Riker. Yeah. Hit, hit him up, he'll be fine. It's, yeah, it's it's 400 years from now. Everyone's down-to-fuck, whatever. Nobody cares. Like, there is no way that after that scene with Guinan, they did not fuck. Yeah. Nothing um, ever came of it, because no, neither of them were interested, but it's fine. It's fine. Uh, and so he's just being super charming, and they're like... <laughs> is like ah oh, i must i must assume that humor is an integral part of sex <laughs> like data <laughs> Uh, so that's really funny. Um, he asked he asked Jordy for uh, advice on people and relationships, which is a bad idea. And then Jordy's like, oh, "You should probably go ask Counselor Troy." Well, that is like, while Jordy is having his haircut from the Tholian barber, uh, Bolian barber, Bully not no, a Tholian Tholi- barber. <laughs> I wish it was a Tholian barber. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Shit, yeah, no. Um, yeah, Mott, the Barber Mott, remember? Because on Starship Mine, Picard pretends to be the Barber Mott. No, you're wrong. He does. What are you talking about? No, I, I, it's not Mott. Are you sure? Yes, because I looked this up and I'm trying to find the name. Uh, who is this Bolian Barber? Give me a second as I look through this thing. Uh, it is 
so he's called in the script Vassal, and there is because uh, he's played by a different actor than who plays Mott, uh, and there is oh. debate among fans as to whether that's just the same character and they recast him as like you know just oh you know play the uh, Burley and Barber, or if there were two Burley and Barbers working thank on the you, Enterprise. Thank you for doing this research because that's interesting. <laughs> I want to believe that it is the same characters recast or whatever because uh, already Star Trek has a weird thing where Bolians are always in like weird service roles in the background of scenes and please don't make that like writ that's gross uh, well though i went to, so i went to one of the the pages for for mott uh and in the apocrypha it's like in what this t uh in this tng novel uh mott is a central character because he is like the uh figurehead for the bolian community like small bolian community on the enterprise who don't like being like marginalized in this way but like because he's got like lots of access to all the like important people but is like in a service role uh so apparently that's a thing that one of the books actually talks about okay I don't that's know how much, but I, I, that, this, this is my research that you're going to get now. That's, that's what's been going on. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that's fine. I'm interested in all this, so that makes uh, sense. So yeah, so, but, so that seems great because uh, they're like ribbing each other lightly, as you do, in a very ridiculous, like, this scene was written to teach data about ribbing way, so they're like insulting each other more than anyone would when actual ribbing. And then data comes in and goes, hello, Geordie, you idiot. <laughs> Yes, uh, he he specifically says, uh, he, Data's, or Jordy's like, oh, do you need a trim? And he's like, my hair does not require trimming, you lunkhead. <laughs> yep. And then Jordy's like, what? <laughs> uh, which hilariously is just the scene from uh, whatever, the, the return, I guess it was, uh, when Data discovered swearing. <laughs> yes. So anytime when Data's just being a dick for fun is good. Uh, yep. Then he goes to Crusher to be taught how to dance. Yes. Uh, where she's upset that he would come to her because she doesn't want the reputation of the dancing doctor, which apparently she had at one point in her life and got rid of by not telling anyone she can dance. Uh, this was an opportunity to show Gates McFadden being a choreographer and dancer. Uh, she famously is the choreographer on the movie Labyrinth, among other things. Um, but she teaches Data how to tap dance because Data was not specific. He said, I need to learn how to dance. And so there's this scene of them tap dancing and Data is great at it because all he has to do is mimic her movements. And then he mentions that it's for the wedding and she has to tell him, no, 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 different kind of dancing for the wedding. And Data cannot slow dance because it's the most like juggling variables, human interaction. And Data is very bad at that. Yes. No, he's really good at tap dancing and like replicating these things. But then like anything that's about leading and reacting to other people he can't really there's an ends in this amazing shot as he's like figured out how to like go along with the motions of it and she's like uh smile and like smile look like you're enjoying this and it slow pans around data's face as he's like dancing with a hologram uh and he's got just the most creepy smile on (laughs) yes uh there's also him running across wharf picking out gifts on in the like replicator room you never see this room again but it's just a place where people go to have stuff made for them and they look through the the most boring catalog for houseware as possible (laughs) so this this scene um is like the uh the thing that has to be there with what star trek implies but seeing it in the flesh is insane because like what the fuck does a wedding gift mean when you can just make it like and and they kind of talk about it's all the thought right like but they have everything you know, like they have everything and and they're just looking through like bad houseware. Like it's not actually personal gifts. Like it's still like tat. I mean, the implication here is that like 
they don't buy anything for their new quarters together and they let people get the stuff that like reflects their friends and then if they need anything else they just go replicate that too right sure but like having this like post-scarcity we can get anything like completely replica like replicas yes uh, no it's like, weird but also like suppose like i believe that you would still give gifts to people in a post-scarcity economy right so do i but seeing it happen by them looking through literally the equivalent of a like argos catalog well i mean the joke is that Worf is entirely the person who buys the same gift to everyone every <laughs> single wedding right yes <laughs> and he's like and- oh my parents told me these wine glasses are good i get them for everyone <laughs> <laughs> and the dead is like would you want to be married to a human wolf would you find that an honor <laughs> and Worf's like wedding human weddings are boring i there's too much crying and uh emotionality and bullshit uh Worf, look your wedding is also full of emotionality and bullshit <laughs> yeah but he stood there like i'm Worf. <laughs> yes that's true uh it's weird because i'm in the middle of watching uh late season six early season seven ds9 and Worf here is like a shadow of late Worf. Yeah, he comes so far. Yeah, he's just like a joke character that's in the background of this show. It's like, I don't know whether him or O'Brien comes the furthest just in terms of like what they started out from, because O'Brien didn't exist. Uh, uh, the thing Wolf... with O'Brien is that by the end of DS9, he's basically Julian Bashir's buddy. That's yes. like, those two are a unit and they're amusing and interesting, but they're kind of played as a joke couple more than anything. Worf is still like a character with like opinions and desires and Worf interiority. Worf development in like season seven of, D- like in the final season of like being on television for 12 years uh, than he does in the entirety of TNG. Yep. Um, yeah, I guess like. Uh, there's good my- Worf stuff in mid period TNG. It's just not this stuff. I just mean that. I just mean like the amount that happens to Worf in late DS Nine is yeah. is so much more than like the pace yes. of early TV. Yep. Uh, but yes, no. This is, always a fan of Worf. Pro Worf. Who's who's into Star Trek but doesn't like Worf? I don't know. Uh, there's also the amazing scene where Data's like, "I am also much like Vulcans, but I find them full of bullshit." <laughs> <laughs> basically what he says this long while, while staring at um ambassador to pell yeah and he's like I, I i understand the like uh desire for logic but basically it's full of shit and i hate it you know <laughs> it's really funny um, yeah and then like two thousand the way through the episode the romulan crisis happens and like, the that, none intrudes. of that matters uh, well so i like the i liked that in that it, um framed the star trek plot as a thing that happens to your day like yes that, that that part was good because it just like occasionally picard's like uh come to uh, you know uh come to the bridge right now and like gives him very urgent information and then he has to just completely change modes and care about this now even though he's like doing normal shit and like off time uh, yeah. so i like the way that was balanced but the way the like plot this intrudes and takes over the episode for 10 minutes is a bit like come on we don't care it doesn't matter yeah. Uh, also, in an extremely TNG move, the wedding, Keiko is in full, like, Japanese get-up, kimono, and face paint and nonsense. As, and, like, uh, like music uh, is playing in the background, like, ding doo doo <laughs> Yes, and O'Brien's just in a dress uniform, as if he's not also a non-commissioned officer on the ship. <laughs> well, so I found that hilarious, because, like, the, the, the joke of that, right, is that it then pans to fucking O'Brien in, like, a leprechaun costume. Because <laughs> that's just the equivalent of what KK yes. is, like, being dressed as. Yes. Uh, and that's all I could think. Because uh, yep. it was a bit, hmm, hmm. And then he's just in his dress uniform. Hasn't even tried, which I guess makes sense for their relationship, but goddamn. Yeah. 
I want the book that talks about how Data introduced Keiko and Miles together. Right? Because this this book like says that like no Data's like a close friend to Keiko. She like looks at him for like advice in like trying times because he like will always be honest and think things through. Uh, and I I don't think that comes up again. I don't think like you get a sense of Data and Keiko's friendship after this because she's absolutely just, not. <laughs> she's literally just with Miles sometimes. Yes, the the only other big thing Keiko ever gets to do in this show is that time she's a child. <laughs> Uh, she gives birth and Worf has to deliver her baby. Yes, but that's very much more about Worf. Also, she's taken over by a ghost at one point, and that's a whole thing. But yeah. mostly it's the time where she's a child. <laughs> and that's not even, like, the same actor. <laughs> no. Hey, the one episode we're going to give you something to do, it's someone else. It's a child. It's not it's you. It's someone it's else, and child. the joke is about Miles O'Brien dealing with his child who he's married to. <laughs> <laughs> Roscoe's is a great episode, but goddamn... Yeah, that whole that whole bit is a little uh, uncomfortable. For someone who got to like star very solidly in like 10 years of TV, Rosalind Chow deserved much better. Yes. Uh, uh do we miss anything in this episode? No, no. It's just it's it's an interesting thing to look back on. Star Trek should be goofier more often, but man, sometimes it can be really weird when it does. The part where um the like Romans just completely reveal their entire plan so the episode can be pat. Yes. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. Remember when Romulans were like the biggest big bad in TOS and now they're just kind of like angry faces on a view screen that never actually do anything? Uh what was hilarious about that uh entire reveal is that they're like they're playing it as a shocking reveal, but because of how view screens work, <laughs> the entire conversation with Picard happens with uh, the uh, Roman captain, like to write a frame with a completely blank space next to him where she is going to walk out into. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and like because they don't cut view screen shots, that's like how the shot looks. And like, why not just have him stand in the middle and step over? What? <laughs> who, who made this choice? It was really funny and obviously unintentional. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, that's it. That's the entire episode. I like that it clarifies why the Enterprise is dark at night. Uh, yeah, you'd, you'd have to have that, right? Because uh, they did, they, like, that happened in that uh, TOS episode, right? When he was, like, staring that woman around and being like, Yeah. We have nighttime here. And Dad is, like, beginning night shift because he's the one who doesn't sleep. Yeah. Riker comes in early because he's like, As a wedding today, you know what that means. <laughs> I don't think Dana knows what that means. I'm not sure I know what that means. Uh, yeah. Why, like didn't, why didn't Miles get a bachelor party and why didn't we see it? Uh, did he? No, I mean, they never talk about it, but Worf got like a ridiculous four-day trial of pain and thirst for his bachelor party. Wolf pres- I mean, Miles presumably had a bachelor party. Yeah, but just very why boring. did yeah, Data would have been at that. They should have showed it. That's my take. <laughs> the problem is that the 24-hour like period means that all of this drama has to happen really quickly. Uh, yeah. I think it would have been fine just to have it be skits. Yeah. It basically anyway. anyway, that's that. That's it. That's all we got. Uh, we'll be back after a musical break with Drastic Measures. If you have no interest in Discovery, uh, okay, but you should listen to us <laughs> talk about this bad book. Who are you? <laughs> Yeah, like, get the hell out of here if you actually don't care about Discovery, I guess. But uh, we will not spoil the end of Discovery or anything. This book takes us well before. We will mention a few things about a plot twist you probably already know if you've paid any attention to Discovery. We will be spoiling, not the, like, end end, but the thing, that will be spoiling a big thing in Discovery. Oh, you mean the thing that we talked about in episode two of our Discovery recaps? <laughs> Just because we knew all along. Didn't mean that it didn't take the, like, show 13 episodes to get there. 
Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It's not even that important. Anyway, musical break. <laughs> This month's book is Star Trek Discovery Drastic Messes. Drastic Meshes? <laughs> drastic Messes. <laughs> drastic Messes. Drastic Messes. Messes, Drastic, and Drastic. <laughs> Fuck you. Drastic Measures, written by Dayton Ward. Uh, it was published on the 6th of February 2018. Just came out. Um, and it is set in 2246 for the most part. Uh, there, are, that's. I think that's when the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is there 10 are. years prior to the Battle of the Binary Stars. There is also a little bit that is uh, right before, I assume, Battle of the Binary Stars. Yes, in 2256. Yeah. Uh, but aside from that, that is um, that's the whole book. The whole book is set uh, about, it's about Tarsus 4. So do you have a quick summary? Because nothing fucking happens in this book. So we'll, there'll be a quick summary. So Tarsus 4 happens. <laughs> yes. I don't, I don't know much. So, God. Uh, so we can't a colony... do a normal like back and forth because nothing happens. Yeah, no. So there's a colony called Tarsus Four, and uh, it is like on the edge of the Federation space. Uh, it used to be an old listening post in the Earth Federation War, but that was abandoned years ago. And then a bunch of colonists who wanted away from the Federation settled here. Um, they had this problem where another colony had some issues. Do you remember the name of that colony? Oh, I don't. Um, um, is it not in this? Um, uh, gosh, I'm trying to look at the list. It is Epsilon Serona 2. Okay, Epsilon Serona 2 had a colony that, like, failed or was attacked or something. Something bad happened to them, right? They had a disaster and they had to leave. Uh, and <laughs> they had the pu- bog-standard Star Trek episode plot, yes. <laughs> yes, and so the Federation took 4,000 4, colonists, right? Uh, I think it no, was no, it's six, it's six and two, right, 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 and took six thousand colonists and like went to Tarsus Four and be like, hey, we need to put these people somewhere. Could you take over? Could you take them in? And Tarsus Four was like, yeah, sure, we can do that. That's not a problem. Uh, and they did, and their numbers went from two thousand to eight thousand overnight, and it was which fine. They were like, we can handle this, and they could up until the like some weird plant matter from whatever you said, Omicron. Whatever. Epsilon Serena 2. Epsilon Serena 2 uh, interacted with the Tarsus 4 ecosystem and created this fungus that was destroying all the food crops, making them impossible to eat. And all of a sudden, this place is like running out of food and they're in the far reaches of space where it will take forever for people to get to them. Uh, They talk to the Federation like, we're fucking screwed if you guys don't show up. And they're like, we're going to send a ship. It will take a month. And then they realize that, oh, we only have like two weeks left of food or whatever. It's a problem. Uh, and at that point, they get rid of their governor, uh, who is called Gisela Ribeiro, and they put in place this guy who showed up and was like, I know how to handle situations. I am a crisis management man. And his name is Adrian Kodos. And his plan, as soon as he's put into place, is to kill half the people on the colony, uh, which he succeeds in. Uh, 
And this happens right as the Federation puts in a better plan and contacts Tarsus Four and is like, wait a second, we've got another ship. We can be there in like a, in like two days. Don't hold tight. We'll be there. Don't worry about it. We got so much food for you. Uh, too late for the rest of the Tarsus Four colony because h- half of them have already been murdered. Uh, that ship is uh, second officer, right? Is she second officer on that ship? Uh, on the Narbonne? I, th- I think so. So, uh, the Narbonne is coming, and second officer on this ship is Philippa Georgiou, who is on a tour of duty because she's like, she's being transferred to the USS Defiant, and she, this is basically like a post waiting for the Defiant to get ready or have a spot open for her or something. Um, this is not your normal ship. She is just on here for a little while. She's like, it's nice to be on a ship that's not a ship of war, which says a lot about where Star Trek is, but we'll get to that when we cover it. Um, and they land, and this is in the middle of this mess, and on Tarsus 4 at the Federation outpost that's been kind of decommissioned, there's like there's like a handful of Starfleet personnel there, is a lieutenant, is he's lieutenant, right? Yes. Lieutenant Gabriel Lorca. Uh, this is Prime Lorca, if you wanted to know, not the Gabriel Lorca we see in the show Discovery. Um, and But for all intents and purposes, it's just Gabriel asks Lorca, because the thing he does once every half of the people on Tosis 4 are murdered is become like the worst cop in the world who's going to get vengeance on Adrian Kodos because his girlfriend died in the massacre. Never mind that everyone else had someone die or everyone they know die or whatever. But he, his pain in particular is very special. And he's going to be the person who hunts down and murders Adrian Kodos. Uh, Georgie Land and is like no 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 you can't get revenge you're a starfleet officer and he's like i am going to get revenge because i'm a starfleet officer and they have a good cop bad cop thing that presents the rest of the show as they or the book as they hunt down adrian kodos and then fail to catch him because they have to because adrian kodos is in that episode conscious of a king um it's a mess. It's dumb. It's bad. It, it takes up the rest of the book and there's no, literally nothing happens. Like <laughs> he eventually tracks down Kodos to some caves and there's a firefight and Kodos is presumed dead because he swapped his DNA with like his right hand man who died in this attack and then got off planet weeks later by like shaving his head and hiding away and nobody noticed. And also nobody's seen Adrian Kodos except like 14 people. One of them being like a teenage James Kirk, but also because this book needed something for that Kirk to do, he shows up and and gives them a picture of the archives of what Adrian Kodos looks like. So actually everyone knows what Adrian Kodos looks like. <laughs> but they don't ever talk about that part because this book is badly written. <laughs> also, there's a framing device where this whole thing is like, we'll cut to interviews of people involved with this who survived that are being interviewed in a book that is published 10 years after the fact by this little girl that Philippa Georgiou keeps running into. Um, and the end of the book is her presenting the book to Captain Georgiou and being like, I think it's important that we remember what happened because it brought out the best of us, even though some people like Lorca think it brought out the worst in us. Because in this book, Lorca's like, this, everyone should have been killed. We should have moved everyone off ship. Like, if these people would have agreed with Kodos, all of them are useless. We should have sacrificed them all because obviously this doesn't work. The Federation's doomed. Everyone sucks. People are bad. And Philip Georgie's like, no, 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 we saved everyone that we could. We did the best we could in a hard situation. We got the bad guy. The Federation is good. People are good. And that's literally their back and forth this entire book. It's a <laughs> yeah, bad like, book. I, I don't, I, I cannot exaggerate enough how, like, after you hit the 18% point and all the people die, uh, every single discussion in the book is one person says, oh, everything's bad. And another person says, but there is hope. And that's it. That's it. But the whole book, there's back and forth and back and forth. And, like, I know on some level that's the, like, that's the fucking Star Trek thing. That is like the entire thing. That is the like that's what Discovery is about. Uh, but there's just it's just nothing happens, and it's just that one beat over and over again. And it's not developed very interestingly. And to be fair, like 
there's not much you can do with tell the story of Tarsus Four. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Star Trek Avenger did a great job by putting Sarek there as the one who got rid, got Kodos off the planet and is part of like a weird Vulcan eco- ecological cult about like preserving ecological diversity. That was a great book. Yes. I mean, we just read a book that did this better, but it also wasn't yes. like about the tar- Like it used that as a starting point. Yes. No, that's true. Uh, but also its depiction of like Kodos hunting down like a child James Kirk running through the snow in the forest of Tarsus 4 and then coming across Sarek who's like no you cannot slaughter this boy is the exact hilarious opposite of Adrian Lorca and a fleet of cops coming and hunting down Adrian Kodos hiding in some caves yeah just like because there's like entire chapters of and then we went out on a search party but then there was a trap so we went out on another search party <laughs> and, it, yep. and, and adrian like, kodos is like moping in like some fucking caves like looking at a shakespeare book going like what would shakespeare write about adrian <laughs> kodos uh and he would go on to find out as he played he became a shakespearean actor because star trek books are dumb sometimes yeah so because this entire book has to like be like it has to, it can't blow up canon. It has to slot into canon on two ends that are both uninteresting. Because on the first point, you've got, um, you know, uh, Kodos, who isn't an interesting character in the first place. No. <laughs> but now you've got him, like, when all you have is this one, like, generic plot point that was used as an extrapolation for an episode in the 60s. Uh, yes. And on the other end, you've got Lorca, but it's not even the Lorca, you know, it's a completely different Lorca, but also you can't just make a new character, so it has to just be the same character from the show, just not the evil one. Uh, and then but he's got- still evil! The literal only difference is this Lorca isn't, like, a human supremacist, right? That's literally the only difference between well- them. <laughs> I mean, there is no way on earth, there is literally no way on earth that this book was, like, finished, uh, and someone came in, and they said, by the way, this isn't the real Lorca. (laughs) I don't think that's true. I think 100% he knew that. Because that stuff has been, like, they straight up said that everyone knew Lorca was Mirror from the beginning. That's what, like, Jason Isaac said, but, like, when Brian Fuller was in charge of that show, that wasn't true. So, That's true. So, like, and I know that the first book was written with, like, Fuller's input. So I, I don't know. I, I have no idea what the schedule on this was or how long ago this was in the tank. I, mm-hmm. I'm i convinced this has to be, I looked at the script for Lorca and wrote this, and then someone told me that it was a different guy. Like, there's, like, it it doesn't make sense any other way. Because, like, the people who, like, are in charge of this book are all Star Trek nerds. You know what Mirror Universe means. You wouldn't just have it be the same person. I cannot That's imagine true. that was done on purpose. Yeah, I mean, I guess if, if you look at this book as, like, this was supposed to be the reason why Lorca is the guy he is, I guess that makes sense, but also this book's still bad if that's the reason. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not, like, a great book, but, like, that decision, like, it has to be a victim of all this bullshit. Like, also, I like that they play Georgiou as, like, the goodest good cop in Starfleet when the previous book she was the captain who fired on a whole like city because they pissed her off well so that's the thing right is that because uh, those two characters are the other main viewpoints of the book then they have georgia was like the you know because in in the um pilot she's like the avatar of all that is good about star trek that has to die to set the season going um and then that just plays it straight as her as a kid, but also that. But then, like, sometimes she sees bad things happening and she goes, is it worth it? Oh, no, it's not. Uh, and then you compare that to her, <laughs> like, launching the phases from space to stun an entire city. Because yes, no, like, Desperate Measures is such a better written book than this one is. Oh, I know. It's a, it's a real shame because we were really excited for this. And it um, just didn't do it at all. 
So a uh, couple things before we talk about the the thing at the beginning of the book, which is the thing that actually matters and is interesting here. <laughs> yes. Um, Kirk is introduced for like a chapter as like a little kid who's like hacking into the computer oh, network. I hate, I hate and- it. The narration is just Philippa Georgiou going, this boy was destined for greatness. He had the eye of a fighter and he stood tall and he was clearly the most honest and good boy in all of the world. I'm like, my dudes, he's just a kid who hacked the computer system. She would not think any of these things Easy because money. he's Jim Kirk. Like what they do is they basically put the beginning of Trek 09 James Kirk into this book. Yep. Uh, it's it's so strange. Like, so anytime there is any like traveling back to earlier this is why i don't like tapestry like when the, uh, younger versions of characters who are great are held up as like this greatness was innate within them it just feels like just dishonest to what star trek is like and, and discovery is all about a middle finger to that because that's Lorca's whole thing and everyone's like shut up Lorca, go away yeah um, so i don't I, I never like it when that comes in and the, the way kirk is portrayed here is like really it just sucks and it's gonna suck because He's thirty. Like this episode was written, like Conscience of the King did not in- intend for him to be thirteen years old. It's just how the timeline worked out, and so every book on Tarsus Four has to deal with it. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the other thing that's interesting: there's a Betazoid crew, like Starfleet officer, in this book. Yes, and there's she... a million characters in this book. Yes, none of them matter, but one of them is a Betazoid. And the thing with her is that we find out in the chapters that are narrated by her that Betazoids, uh, when the rest of humanity landed on Beta Z, they didn't tell anyone that they're all mind readers. And then several of them are now, like, went through Starfleet and are Starfleet officers, and they still have not told anyone that they're mind readers. And they're considering whether they should tell everyone that they're mind readers when they join the Federation. And I cannot believe that all of Beta Z was like, what if we just don't tell anyone that we do this one thing that defines our race and culture? No better Z- like no like better Z- we've met can help themselves. Yeah. <laughs> like it goes like literally completely- literally you interact with the beta Zoid for three minutes and they will tell you something embarrassing about yourself and <laughs> tell you how good they are at reading minds and then walk away. <laughs> like even as a concept of like oh like if if you're writing a star uh, like a, a sci-fi book and you have a concept of mind readers but they can't admit it because like it would they don't want to like ruin their interaction with other species like fine fine premise it just doesn't jive with anything about like this race that exists in a series already i assume the reason this is the case is because they they want to like allow for like oh beta zeds have been around forever just no one knew about their powers so that's why you never comes up in T- tos right that has to it has to be like a law reason like but that, that is the most like sense. no prize nobody cares about any of this possible <laughs> I would just have accepted there were beta Zeds all along. Like, yeah, this is a show that introduced a character that is like kind of a robot person in a world where there's an entire character a hundred years later defined by being the one sentient android in the universe. DS9 has a shot, has like an entire scene about whoa, holograms are weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's strange, because uh, I, I don't. And that has to that right. I hadn't considered that it would be like a fucking no prize type thing, but of course it yes. is. Yeah, that's the most Star Trek explanation possible. God, Star Trek fans. Yeah, so all that's dumb. Part of this book just being badly written and bad. Uh, and Every, then we, so many characters; they all have names. Like there are so many names thrown at you back and forth as it goes between like uh, the people in the Narbonne, the people who are on uh, like on Tarsus Four, uh, Kodos's crew. Like it's just so much going on and very little of consequence actually progressing 
Yep. Yep. Uh, none of that matters. Let's talk about the thing that does matter, which is the first, like, fifth of this book where clearly the, like, uh, Kirsten Beyer, who's, like, the editor for all of these books and works on the show gave notes about what needs to be included in this book because it ties into the greater picture of discovery uh the first 15 percent is really good yes it's amazing it sets up a much more interesting book than the one that plays out yep uh so also do you want to give like a quick and more detailed summary of how the like book introduces its ideas so it's not even just it's just the ideas themselves so one Tarsus 4 is a listening post from the Earth-Romulan War because there's just planets where there's, like, radio stations because the whole thing about the Earth-Romulan War is that they never actually, like, saw Romulans. It was just a battle fought with nuclear weapons and radio communication, which is the fucking coolest thing. Even if Enterprise makes none of that make sense, it's still the fucking coolest thing that's ever happened. We're going to read those books. We're going to yeah. read those books. Um, and so they just left all these listening posts all across the galaxy as the rest of the world happened and the Federation was formed and they slowly grew out. And humanity being humanity, a lot of them decided that they didn't want to be on Earth because Earth sucks and is boring and they didn't want to be in Starfleet because they're a bunch of cops. So they just got into little ships and flew out into the middle of nowhere and settled colonies on the world, which is why TOS is a show about going to rocks where men are miners and they hate their lives because that's what happens when you go off into space where there's no like actual civilization. They're just a bunch of like enclaves of militia men out in the galaxy. Yep. Um, and then Starfleet, now that it, they're growing and it's been a hundred years and they're expanding and they got new people, are slowly starting to encroach onto these spaces where they are not ex like excited to see Starfleet show up and plant their flag. Uh, but Starfleet, because they are good at this, just continues to do that on and on and on. And they're like, oh, humans, we know you. You used to be us. Plant flag, move on, right? That's <laughs> yeah. just the Federation way. Literally um, just like showing up on the planet and being like, ah, that's one of us already. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, no. Uh, we, you know, we'll put a couple of people here station just to make sure you don't fuck anything up and you're one of ours or whatever uh and w if we need to move six thousand people onto your planet we'll just do that like whatever um and at the same time uh like people like philip georgiou are like hmm i don't i feel weird about star being in starfleet sometimes they can be a little militaristic like those new constitution class ships which are being kept secret it's revealed like no one they don't tell people where constitution class ships are in the galaxy they don't tell people what they look like like they're they haven't been seen by most people they are like these high-tech black box ships that are like they are meant to be the militaristic arm to go into deep space and plant flags on new planets and then fly off into further deep space as the rest of everyone catches up and then puts colonies and bases there. So what actually the actual truth is, is that the Enterprise and the Yorktown and the Defiant and all of the cool ships that you think of in TOS are just bus buses full of cops meant to bring cops to your planet and punch you and fly away. Yeah, the, the way um like describes the Constitution classes, it's literally just cop buses. Uh, who are there to fuck you up and move on. Like, it is really pointed in this critique. And then it just literally goes away after the 15% point. Like, it just all yeah. disappears as it's entirely about shitty cops doing shitty cop chasing shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> complete 180. The book is not actually about interrogating, um, like, the Federation's entitlement to these colonists and also the colonists' entitlement themselves to the fucking galaxy. Like, it doesn't... De like, the book sets up, basically, uh, the set of dominoes of a human colonialism uh and then it, then it starts playing cards in the other room <laughs> like, yeah, yeah uh even though the last book was like already about that <laughs> yeah the last book like actually grappled with that like you get the sense that kirsten byer is like yeah no let's look at like 
colonialism in Star Trek because it's it's the thing with Star Trek, right? When you look at Star Trek now, you're like, man, there's a lot of assumptions about what humans should be doing to other cultures in it. Um, and especially and, when you're in the TOS era when like every episode is just a Western. Yeah, where he lands on a planet, gives you a speech about democracy and flies off again. <laughs> um, and in the last book we read, uh, Desperate Hours, like the book is explicitly about that. Like the plot is written to give you uh, Captain Pike shows up and he's like, let's just glass this planet. All these people are dead. Who cares? Let's, we have the right to do that. And Philip Georgiou being like, no, no, no. We're here because these people want to live here and we swore to protect them. That means protecting them, not sent, turning them into ash, which is like the big debate between the two of them. And it's interesting in that it, it grapples with the, the stuff that is about the fact that there are colonies that don't like the Federation, but the Federation, because they're the good guys, are sworn to protect. Um, this book sets all that up and then does absolutely nothing with it, even though they have a more interesting ground to work with in the Tarsus Force stuff. Instead, it just gives you the most perfunctory lore backfill possible and then gets out. But, like, it tries it tries to be about that stuff in that every single chapter has a character going, well, I did think this about this like the refugees coming but then i also thought we should be left alone about this but it never like develops those viewpoints or makes like engaging with those themes the like plot because it has yes. to be about this dumb cop chase uh, and it doesn't so even it doesn't even give kodos like a good motivation for like killing half of everyone and like deciding to do drastic measures in a world where he's like feeling pressure from the encroachment of the federation and still needing to take care of everyone like they could have given him at least something like even if he's still a villain they don't give him anything other than well it seemed like a good idea and i hope history <laughs> believes that it's a good idea <laughs> yep and like he's just completely survival of the fittest which is the most boring route to go with that Yes. Um, but instead, it's it's all of the setup that is, because the rest of the book is the way it is, I can't believe that was Dayton Ward's idea. That definitely feels, and we've read enough of these now that you get the sense that, like, they get notes on what they need to include, and then they get to tell their story, and so it definitely feels like he got the notes, he put them in, and then told his story, even though it doesn't line up with anything else happening. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know anything about the process, I don't want to say, like, either way, but it definitely feels like the, the setup of this book is a really interesting ground, and then it's never really engaged with. Um, yep. Because, I, yeah, I, I just can't say enough about how frustrated I was about how... The book seems to, like, l think that saying nothing is the same thing as ambiguity. Yes. But, like, it'll literally just have characters go, well, this is good, but this is... Like, these things conflict, and how do we deal with those? I guess that's just a problem that we have in space. Yes. And, like, that's the conclusion of every chapter, is that all these things are complex. And it just shrugs. At, like, and this happens to multiple characters. I'll be like, oh, well, well, the refugees came, but like, I wasn't going to turn them down because it's the right thing to do. But then no one has, like, motivations that clash, and it's the clashes of those, like, worldviews that makes the drama happen, even though that's what Star Trek is built on. <laughs> they just have... Yep they just kind of say things and shrug uh yeah. so yeah it's it's a really frustrating book um also like at the end of it fucking captain winter shows up uh or captain april sorry um shows up in the enterprise like right at the end after everything's done he shows up in the enterprise wearing a fucking sweater over his starfleet jumpsuit and is like i'll take over from here in his cop ship that they won't tell anybody what it does other than it flies around and plants flags. Also, like, the reason the Tarsus 4 thing got as desperate as it did is because Starfleet didn't want to tell them that there were ships close by that could arrive sooner than a month from now until they made sure that they were unclassified. Like, it just is the most massive failure of Starfleet to, like, trust anyone and not be, like, just an arm of colonialism. And... That stuff could be interesting in a book that wanted to grapple with it, but instead it tells you that the Constitution class are warships, and then one shows up and passes out candy bars at the end of the book. <laughs> yep, and like, yeah, so the, 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 
it's basically an entirely a, fa- a failure of the Federation. But in the book, makes it about like, oh, there are so many causes that who can say one way. Everything, and it like- even sets up interesting ideas like when the massacre happens, the Codices people steal Federation like phaser cannons from the old Earth Ramen War Armory and use them on the populace. Never brought up again that that might be like a weird PR thing that might like mess with how people perceive everything. Yeah, like the Federation just on this planet, the, on like a listening post essentially, had weapons that could kill half the population like that. That was just there <laughs> and they took them and they used them. <laughs> yep. on, a, on a planet that only had a, a, a fungal infection because the Federation didn't like do their like ecological test thoroughly enough uh yes and only didn't let them know about help because they hadn't like checked their fucking classified cop ship records like and then the and then the rest of the book still treats the federation presence on the planet as like everyone loves them and except for kodos's people who are evil yeah and like it's like oh sometimes the federation can be mad but it's it's the ideals that are worth fighting for it's worth it all along which like like that is literally what discovery is about but much like it's actually central and this should be way more condemning like of the bureaucracy of the federation in a bigger way um which is another bummer because that's what the last book we read was about with yes. Tarsus Four, <laughs> yes, like that whole book is about how the Federation is a bureaucratic nightmare of colonialism that is going to die, and that's just a thing we have to accept. Like it'll, it'll just collapse one day, and it won't come because of like a war. It'll just collapse in on itself because it wasn't ready for the like nature of the world because it's too selfish uh, and driven by its own needs. And like that was an actual critique that was explored through the book and came out really well uh and you like were like that's really good stuff and then just just like a wet fart here yep oh that's 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 all we that's it that's all we got this book's bad uh usually we like you know tell you the plot but that's that's really it the whole thing. I mean, we did. We told you the plot. Literally nothing happened. Like, I go B for B at about the time that they found some bombs in the forest. It was a bad time. And Lorca then used one of Codus's men as, like, bait to march forward and get blown up, if would be. Oh, you don't want to talk about his fucking Elliot Stabler investigation interrogation scene? Oh, the one where he goes in and, like, beats up a guy being interrogated, and then uh, George is like, that's a violation of his civil rights. And Lorca's like, yeah, I'm sorry. And George is like, I understand. You're going through a lot right now. I would think about doing such a thing, too, even though she never would. Uh, It's dumb. It's bad. Yep. It's... Remember, remember at the beginning of season three of Enterprise where everyone became cops for no good reason? That's this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's literally how the second episode of Enterprise season three has fucking Archer literally torture a guy and all threaten and throw him into space. And everyone's yeah. like, Did, really? Archer? Overnight? Man, 9-11 fucked us up big, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this book feels like the most fucking post 9-11 bullshit. I hate it. Yeah, no. Uh, God. Lorca and Lorca's even got cheesy Jack Bauer one-liners. Yes. Also, he still has a fixation on fucking fortune cookies. <laughs> the fortune cookies. Uh, and he has a dumb dead girlfriend. <laughs> yep. She was good for him. Yep. He was thinking about leaving Starfleet to be with her on Tarsus Four. <laughs> As she was only one day before retirement. Like. Yeah. <laughs> good to be back i wish we had a better book well ron howard voice <laughs> ron ha- clint howard clint voice, howard voice. <laughs> <sighs> 
that's it. I don't know. We we have a new we have a new book next time. We're gonna read the lives of Dax. I'm really excited for it. It's a bunch of short stories about each of Dax's hosts. Um, we will be probably reading the reprint version, which I think ties it a little more into the DS9 stuff we've been reading. But I don't think by much. I think that's just in like a framing device. Uh, no, it was always it's it ties in some Enterprise stuff. I think. Oh really? Okay. I don't. I just know, know at some point is. there's there's additions and changes. Yeah, there's definitely a change. I don't know what the exact order is or what it changes. Yep. It definitely changes something. But anyway. That's everything. Is it time for the plug zone? Uh, oh, I mean, I just want to reiterate next time we're watching Rejoin and uh, Field of Fire. So please look forward to those also. Watch those episodes. Field of Fire is, in my memory, one of the best weirder episodes of late DS9. Well, we'll see, won't we? We'll see for yeah. ourselves. What if I hate it this time? It's very possible. It's very possible. Uh, no, no. It has to be good. I believe. <laughs> I believe. I you can find the other shows we do at abnormalmapping.com. We have Abnormal Mapping, which is a game club at thebestgame.club. Uh, that, it's good. It's a game club. We play a game every month. We talk about it. It's a good time. Uh, we have the Amory School, which is from me and Molly, where we read the comics of Coheed and Cambria and listen to the music, and it's very, very stupid, and everyone loves it because it's that stupid. Um, everyone needs mayo, and that's at ineedmayo.com. Uh, yeah we have novel not new which is a visual novel podcast uh with jen six and m you play a visual novel and talk about it it's exactly what it says on the tin we also have fireside friends at firesidefriends.net uh which is ryan allen and katie's show there are new additions that i'm forgetting because it's messing up my order uh we have your phase would never at your phase would never dot fyi that's phase was an e i type it wrong every time no, it doesn't flow as well if it's just F-A-V-S. That's just Favs. It's Favs. I'm sorry. I've been My brain's been ruined. That's how I think of when people say you're Favs. Like, you're right, but I feel like if you if I was writing it in a paper, I would write with an E. So that's, that's how true. I wrote it for the podcast. That's true, but we are writing it online. Yeah, well. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, that's up your Facebook level with dot F by I. Uh, it's a weekly show with M and Destiny talking uh, about their week, about like topics. Uh, the Sometimes last episode... we talk about Star Trek. We talked about Profit and Lace in episode four. So yeah. Last episode was a look at your high school selves. Yeah. How far you've all come and how little uh, you've all come. Nine <laughs> mm, eleven. <laughs> Uh, I think that's it for the shows I list. I'm going to have to like actually start writing them down and change this plug up as we go, because we've got a film podcast coming very soon, finally. Yeah, um, but we are all a Patreon-supported network. Uh, you can find that at patreon.com slash abnormalmapping. Uh, thank you, anyone who supports us at any tier you support us on. We definitely need the money. It's good. It keeps us afloat. Uh, times are tough all around. Thanks, everyone who supports us. And if you don't support us, please consider, even for a dollar, uh, you will get stuff, and we definitely appreciate it. For that $1, you get a bonus podcast called The Great Gundam Project, where once a week, me and Jackson sit down and watch through all of Mobile Suit Gundam from start to finish. We are in Zeta Gundam, which is the second show right now. Uh, we're, we're getting... We're more than halfway through. We're getting on. Uh, we will be watching Gundam from now until the mid-2020s, so please look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that's it. You can find me on Twitter at em underscore being. Jackson, did you plug your Twitter? Absolutely not. At head falls off. Uh, that's it. We'll be back next time with some Dax shit. It'll be good. I'm really excited to go back to DS9. By the time we record, I might be done watching Deep Space Nine again, which is great. I'm so hyped for that. Um, 
Rewatching New Space Nine has definitely filled in some of the things at the beginning of that DS9 relaunch that we'll talk about when we get to that. Yeah, um, I'm kind of lost in a lot of ways. Because, like, Bahal and stuff shows up in that show multiple times. Oh, shit. Okay. Yes. Can we talk about her like she's new? <laughs> no, not her. That's not a person. Bahal is the city. Right. Fuck. I've Who do you think got... we're talking about, Jackson? Who's the fake Kira? Oh, she's new. Okay. I, I don't What's remember her mean? name. I don't remember. She doesn't matter. Jesus Christ, it's been so long. I'm not going to know who anyone is. <laughs> Big no. boss. Big boss. Anyway, um, thanks, everybody. Uh, we'll be back next time. Until then, I will see you out there.